0: Amen. It's a joy to be before you this morning to preach the Word, and I I would invite you to open up uh, back again to 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is a longer narrative passage, and so I wanted us to read it during the uh, Scripture reading so that we'd have a chance to take it all in. I'm not going to reread all of it. I just want to uh, dive in deep. I have been studying through 1 Samuel and discovering all sorts of really fascinating things I didn't know about Samuel um, one of the things that really fascinates me about his life is that he was kind of like Moses. He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a ruler, or he was a judge, specifically. Uh, you know, Moses was a prophet, a priest, and a, a ruler to the people of Israel, and so is Samuel. I never really thought of him that way, but he, is all, he fulfills all three roles in his ministry— in a very special, unique ministry. And where we are in 1 Samuel 12 is really a, a, a change of government, a change of the system of how they were ruled from judges to kings. Um, and and that, that we're at that turning point. That's where we're at in history. And this message that I'm going to be preaching from is Samuel's message. He preached on that day when it shifted from judges to Kings to uh, a king ruling over them. Uh, he's known, Samuel is known as the kingmaker. He anointed King Saul, and King Saul was, of course, the first. He anointed King David as well. Uh, and so he inaugurated the, the kingdom in, in the, the kingdom of Israel. Um, fascinating life. Now, this particular sermon uh, that he preaches, this message that he preaches. Uh, really drew my attention because of what he says about the fear of the Lord. And you can see uh, my title there is, Do Not Be Afraid, Stand in Fear. And there's this moment in his message, you may have caught it as, as Pastor Chase was reading it, there's this moment where he says in verse 20, Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you've done all this evil. And you're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Shouldn't we be afraid because we did all the evil? But he says, do not be afraid. And it's a really interesting turn. He he, he tells us four different times in this passage. Verse 14, verse 18, verse 20, and verse 24. He tells the people of Israel to stand in fear of God. Except this verse 20. He says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. So I wanted to draw out and learn for myself what... What is that relationship between fearing the Lord and being afraid of the Lord? How do we understand that as we relate to a holy, righteous God who we rightfully should fear? How do we not just live in terror? And that that was what drew me to this particular passage. And as I began thinking about this, I remembered an account, my my family growing up, one of the things we would do for for fun is we would go to the movies, the Dollar Theater, and it was a really special occasion when we'd go to the Ponderosa and eat a bunch of their rolls, and then we'd go to the Dollar Theater, it was super special. One particular time, I remember, we had a little bit extra time (laughs) before the uh, movie was about to start, and uh, so we went to a pet store, And this pet store, in the middle of this pet store was this gigantic parrot. And this parrot was not, it wasn't in a cage, it was just chilling, and it was on this big bar. And my dad walked over to this parrot, and well, actually by the time I saw him, the parrot was already on my dad's hand. And I was like, how did you do that? So I'm this little kid, I run over, I want to do the same thing. And I was like, how did you do that? And he said, well, you just stick your hand out and he'll, he'll get on your hand. And so I stick my hand out, and he bit the snot out of me. (laughs) And I was like, how did you do that? I mean, how did you get him? Did he not bite you? And he's like, yeah, he bit me. And, of course, I did what you would think to do, and that's jerk your hand back. Well, when Dad would stick out his hand, that parrot would reach down and bite the snot out of him, but he wouldn't jerk his hand back. He just held it there. And the parrot knew something. He was testing him. He knew that he had a healthy respect for him, and he wasn't afraid of him. That's what we're looking for in our relationship with God. How do we have a healthy fear of God? And it goes, it goes beyond respect, and we're going to get there, but how do we have a healthy fear of God that we stand rightly viewing God as who he is, the holy righteous judge, the king of the universe, to whom we must submit, to whom we will give an account, And yet not live in terror and live in fear and be afraid all of our days before him. Well, this account should be a retirement party for Samuel and a coronation for Saul. Remember, this is the turning. This is the judges are over. Samuel is the last judge that judged Israel. So it should be his retirement party. This should be a big celebration of like, hey, Samuel, thanks so much. You were a great prophet and a great priest and great judge, and we appreciate you, and give him a mug, you know. And, uh, and then it switches over to Saul, and it should be his coronation. But when you look at this text, you don't see... Man, what a, 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 what is we're just saying this, uh, a, the royal diadem being brought before King Saul and placed on his head. You don't have a description of this great celebration and this great joy. It's actually a time of Samuel calling the people of Israel to repentance. It's a fascinating thing, this turn of events. God knew this would happen. He ordained for it to happen. If you look all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, he gave rules for, hey, when the time comes that you really want a king and you can't live without one and you put a king over you to rule over you, when that happens, this is how he's to live. And he gives regulations for how he's to live, how he's to to rule the people. What is he to do in his private life? How is he to have a private devotion to the Lord? How is he to be meditating on the law of God regularly so that he can lead the people well? So you have regulations. There's an expectation that this will eventually happen. But when it happens, it doesn't happen in the right motivation or the right heart. The people were scared of the Ammonites, and they were, you know, about to, uh, they were encroaching upon them, about to defeat them, and they cry out, make us a king like them so that we can be just cool and, and we can beat them, because we have a better king, and they're whiny and they're griping. They reject, ultimately they reject God as their king, and they want an earthly king. And so this is not a happy occasion. Samuel is very upset. If you look back at chapter eight, it gives an account of how God says, listen, Samuel, I know you're upset, They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Well, they're kind of rejecting you too, but they're mostly rejecting me. That's kind of the way he puts it, is that you are, the people of Israel, you are rejecting me as your king. Me as your rightful king. That is the way you you were to be ruled, is that I was to be your king, leading you and ruling you. And they've rejected God as their king, and they've set up their own earthly king. You don't even see in this text, you don't even see a picture of what david would one day be of what of how jesus would one day sit on the throne and rule this kingdom rule his kingdom there's none of that there's none of that in this coronation ceremony it is a call to repentance and if you just just to get at the lay of the land i want to look at just kind of the way that this chapter is broken up. If you look at uh, 1 through 5, Samuel is saying, put me on trial. I've been your prophet, your priest, and your judge. Now this is the time. Put me on trial. See how I've done. And he shows himself to be true. He shows himself to be faithful, unlike Eli before him and his sons before him and <clears throat> Saul after him. He shows himself to be faithful. And then he says, okay, now let's put you on trial. And 6 through 13, Israel is on trial. And Samuel preaches an indictment against them that they have been unfaithful. Historically, they've been unfaithful. And in this moment, they're being unfaithful to the covenant that they've made with God because they're rejecting him as their king. Now look at verses 14 and 15. Now, you have a king over you. I mean, sure, Saul was standing there. He's like, You got a king now. You happy? And then he says, Listen, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. And your king. This is his call to repentance. His call to repent. He then says, "Just so you know that this message comes from God, I'm going to call down thunder and rain upon you." Now that seems like a little bit harmless. This is the. the if you notice, he even says, "It's behold, it's the wheat harvest." This is the dry season. It, is, it very, very, very rarely rains during this part of the year. And I'm going to call down rain and call down thunder so that you know that this message comes from God. They are terrified. Then Samuel says, Do not be afraid. So I want to look more closely at why is that? Why is that he is able to tell them, Fear God, don't be afraid. My my first point comes from verse 14, but it's repeated. It's this idea of stand in fear of the Lord. How do we understand the fear of the Lord? How do we understand what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to stand in fear of him? This is a reverence and awe and a recognition, a right recognition, that he is everything and I am nothing. It is developing a relationship of authority and submission, Because God is majestic and holy and righteous and good and perfect and everlasting, and I am finite and weak and poor and tiny and a blip on the radar, I submit to him. It's a right relationship. We understand that we submit to a holy God. And this is what gives us purpose. Because it's God that has created us, especially, and he's he's created us especially to worship him and to serve him and to live in a relationship with him. If you walk away from that relationship, that's an unnatural life. And so it's living in fear of God that actually brings fulfillment. It brings satisfaction. It brings joy because you're doing exactly what God has called you to do. It brings worth to us. The fear of the Lord is an attitude. It's an attitude of our hearts that then f- from that flows our thoughts and our words and our actions and our choices. The fear of the Lord is a frame of mind. If you're living in the fear of the Lord, you're living in right relationship with God. And that will affect every part of your life. And Samuel gives us three specific things that flow from a healthy Fear of God. This is also in verse 14. If you fear the Lord, and then he says, What does that look like? What does it look like to fear the Lord? Give me some practical application here. He says, First of all, serve him. He says, Serve him. He says, Obey him. And he says, Follow him. First, let's look at serve the Lord. And he says, Serve the Lord with all of your heart. These commands are repeated. You can see they're repeated throughout this chapter. Fear the Lord appears four times. Serve the Lord appears three times. You can see he repeats this throughout a sermon because this is significantly important. What does it mean to serve the Lord? This is the idea of service. This is the idea of working. So if you are into uh, any of the old um, English shows like Downton Abbey or something like that, you know the, the difference between the upstairs and the downstairs. And This is the service, right? We are in, we are in servitude to God, He's the king. We are in servitude to him. We live our lives for his glory, for his good. Everything that we do is for his betterment, It's for his good. We're a slave to. It also has the idea of worship. We live in worship toward God, a life of service. And so you can see how this then will play out in your life. If you're living in service to the Lord first and foremost it'll affect all your other relationships. Because every other relationship, then, if you put God at the top as he is my number one priority, everything in life is about him, then everything else gets bumped down a notch. But it also defines it in a new and rightful way. So if you are a son or daughter, you begin to understand authority and submission. Because you're submitting rightfully to God And you know that God has placed in authority over you parents. So you will begin to submit to them. If you are a parent, you understand God as your heavenly father whom you submit to and who is in authority over you. And you know that he has entrusted to you children. This is what we celebrate this morning. This parent commitment. We're saying before God, I know that God has entrusted to me this child, to nurture and protect and care for and love and shepherd. It's my responsibility. You see how that defines my relationship with Magnolia? As a husband, you know that God has said, he who finds a wife has found a good thing. And that he's placed you in a position to lead and to care for, to provide and to protect, to follow his example that he gives us to wash her in the water of the word. It defines your role as a husband, as a wife. You understand that first and foremost, your fealty goes to God. You are submitting to God, but you also know that he's placed in your life a head. You are to willingly submit to, and you are to have a love for his word that leads you to respect your husband. Everything your hand finds to do, you're enlisted in his service. You are enlisted, and your goal, your aim, Timothy or Paul says, your aim is to please the one who has enlisted you. Fearing the Lord looks like serving the Lord, but next, obeying the Lord. Obeying the Lord, this is that point B. He says, obey the voice of the Lord, and the counterpart to that is don't rebel against his commandments. If you rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the Lord's hand will be against you, is what he says. You do not want to be in that position. You want to rightfully fear God and know there's real consequences to my actions before a holy God. So obeying the voice of the Lord, what does that look like? Well, this word is significant. The word here is Shema, which I only say because this is the the word he uses in that, that greatest of all commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus says this is the great and first commandment. Hear, O Israel, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. It's the greatest of all commandments. Hear. That word shema means to hear. But it's not just hear. It's hear and listen and know and understand and obey. It encompasses all of that. It's not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. When he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's saying, this is an active thing. You need to be listening. You need to be uh, uh, turning your, your attention toward the Lord. Very active thing. He's just recalled in this account of verses 6 through 13, he's just, account, he just given an account of the history of this covenant that he's made with Israel. To hear, first off, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He recounts the man who used it. He talks about Moses. He talks about Aaron. He recounts the covenant that it introduced. And he talked about their failure to obey that covenant. The people of Israel failed to hear. They failed to obey the voice of the Lord. Well, how do we do that just practically? Let me just give a couple things. How do we live in fear of God in such a way that we're obeying the voice of the Lord? Well, it must start with hearing. If, you're not, have, if you don't have a regular intake of God's word, if you don't have a, a regular diet of God's word, then how are you going to expect to obey if you don't hear? So a couple things we can resolve ourselves to. For some of you, committing yourself to hearing the word of God and obeying the word of God, it may be as simple as saying, you know what? In our home, we're going to resolve ourselves. that It won't be a question on Saturday night. Are we going to church tomorrow? That should, be, that should be a foolish question in your home for your children to say, are we going to church tomorrow? It's expected. It's what we do. It's just a part of life. It's who, we, it's who we are as the people of God that we would gather together as the people of God. Because when you come here and you gather, you hear the preaching of God's word. Maybe for some of you, it is during the sermon, you're more attentive, you're taking notes, you're then studying those notes before community groups so you can be prepared to discuss it and apply it to your life and apply it to others' lives. Maybe it's going to bed earlier on Saturday night so that Sunday morning is not the most horrific morning of the week, right, because... Sunday morning is a what? A couple of you know. It's a Saturday night decision, right? Maybe for some of you it's committing to a discipleship class. I'm not committed to any discipleship class, but I'm going to commit myself to this class. I'm going to submit to that teacher and learn from the word of God during that time. Invest myself in it. Maybe it is setting aside a half hour every day to read, and to meditate on God's word. Maybe it's committing to memorizing an extended passage of Scripture to, feel, to fill your mind. He says that the opposite of this is to rebel. If you don't obey, if you don't hear, then you rebel. That is the picture. There's no other option. There's no other, well, I was okay. No, you, you hear and you obey, or you're in rebellion is what he says. This is to turn a deaf ear to the voice of God. It's to suppress the truth or the conviction that you feel in your heart to rebel. He rebukes the nation of Israel for forgetting. And that seems a little harsh, to rebuke someone for forgetting. Uh, As Anna and I were dating, it was I think the second time that I visited uh, her parents. And we were gathered around the dinner table, and her dad uh, began to pray before we ate supper. And he said, Lord, thank you that Brian and um, uh, uh, Anna could be here to join us. And he went on with his prayer. Well, forgetting your own daughter's name, that might be a little bit worthy of a little, you know, like, should you really do that? But uh, Anna actually, right after he was over, uh, she like went up and shook his hand. It's like, you've raised a fine son, sir. <laughs> like, um, but forgetting, is that really rebuke worthy? I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? To forget, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But the covenant that they had made with God was to remember the Lord your God. If the command is remember the Lord your God, then the disobedience is to Forget. So forgetting doesn't just become, oh, it it slipped my mind. No, forgetting the Lord your God, when it's your main priority in life is to live for his glory, forgetting the Lord becomes a big deal. And he rebukes them in verse 9. And he gives five examples of them rebelling against the Lord by forgetting God, by slipping away by just letting it slip their mind. Oh, I kind of forgot about God. At one point in the history of Israel, they lose the Bible. Come on! I mean, it's the Bible. How do you lose that? How do you forget God? But do we not do that? It's so easy. And Satan is so skilled and gifted at causing things to slip our mind. Isn't he? Don't we so quickly... Drift away from the Lord? The author to the Hebrews says, we have to pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away from them. It's not only Satan's slyness, it's our own very nature to wander and to drift away from God. You don't naturally accidentally drift closer in a relationship with God. You don't just wake up one day and think, man, this is great, I'm so close to the Lord. No, it takes work, it takes attention. You have to be active and intentional about pursuing God, about remembering God, about serving Him and obeying Him and living for His glory. Resolve yourself not to drift. Resolve yourself to remember By listening to the voice of God. And this third way he says that we are to fear God is to follow the Lord without turning aside. To follow the Lord. Same idea. We're following the Lord, but we are tempted to drift. We're tempted to to turn aside. And he says, if you will follow the Lord without turning aside. This is the idea of discipleship. This is Jesus going to the disciples and saying, follow me it is the disciples coming along beside or behind him and following in his footsteps imitating everything that he does it's a single-minded devotion that i'm going to follow the ways of the lord it's active it's intentional imitation we sing turn your eyes upon jesus look full into his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim In the light of his glory and grace. The psalmist says turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And give me life in your ways. Following the Lord is a single narrow path. That leads to life. And life more abundant This is discipleship. After he defines what it looks like to fear the Lord, he then calls them to repentance. This is verses 16 through 19. Look there. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Interestingly, that says see this great word that the Lord will do before your eyes. This great word, the voice of the Lord, affirming what his prophet is saying. See, stand still, and see this great thing. It's wheat harvest today. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So he called upon the Lord, the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people, how do they respond? Verse 19, they say to Samuel, pray for us. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. They are terrified. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Remember, this is supposed to be a coronation, a retirement ceremony, but it's a call to repentance. He's calling them to turn from their sin. And this is the turning point, verse 19, where it all shifts. And the hinges are faith and repentance. I want to draw your attention to that in this text. The hinges that turn the Lord's anger away from the people of Israel our faith and repentance. It seems odd in verse 20 that his first words, like we said, would be, do not be afraid. You've done all this great evil. It should say, do not be afraid. You didn't do anything wrong. Or, you should be afraid because you are wicked. But he says, do not be afraid. Now, he says that intentionally. There's no accident here. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he inspired this. Samuel knew what he was doing when he preached this. And it, it at root has to do with this singular idea. And I want you to understand this above all. The only way to stand before a holy God and not be afraid is to have perfect fear. The only way to stand before a holy God and not be afraid is to live in perfect fear. What we mean here is perfectly serving, perfectly obeying, perfectly following the Lord your God. Right? If you are perfectly serving the Lord, if you are living in perfect fear of God, then you would have nothing to fear to stand before Him. But we have one problem. We have done all this wickedness. And we've added to all these sins that you've listed, rejecting God as our king. And so they are terrified, and rightfully so. They've rejected the God who they swore to serve. They've broken the covenant. They are doomed, if that's true. They're doomed. There's no way they can not be afraid before a holy God. It seems like, and here's the reality, turn to Romans chapter 3. It's not just that they are doomed, but Paul says that we all are. In fact, he says, he builds a whole entire argument, a whole entire case for showing in chapter 1 of Romans, the Gentiles are doomed. They are all sinners and all deserve the righteous wrath of God. And then he takes all of chapter 2 and he says, oh, you Jews think you're that much better because you have the law. No, the law condemns you as well. You are doomed because you are all sinners. And then in chapter 3, he sums it up. Look at verse 9. Verse. Let's pick up in 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No one perfectly fears the Lord. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Everybody's turned aside. Remember that? Follow, do not turn aside. Every single one of us have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. None of us have done any good, not even one. Now skip down to verse 18. There is no what? There's no fear of God before their eyes. All of us stand condemned. All of us before a holy God should be mortified, should be shaking, should be terrified. And yet he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. What? (laughs) Do not be afraid. You've done all this evil. How can it be that a sinful human being can stand before a holy God not in fear, in terror? It's not by doing better. It's not by trying harder. It's not by doing less good. That would just mean that you're a wicked person who occasionally does good things. No, it requires a change of nature, a change of heart. It requires God to reach down to your cold, hard heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It requires that your old self dies and that you are made alive in Jesus Christ. Your sin, your filth, your unrighteousness Taken away from you and placed on Christ on the cross and his righteousness given to you. How is this possible? Look at Romans, it's a little bit farther down, verse 20, chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. <clears throat> it's only possible through someone else's righteousness. Someone else lived in fear of the Lord perfectly on your behalf. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Skip down to 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We establish that. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is only hope in you being absolutely changed. And I want you to look back at this text in 1 Samuel 12 and I want you to see that change take place. When they are confronted with their sin, when they're confronted with the reality of their rejection of God and they're called to repentance, they stand in great fear knowing I'm I'm not afraid of the thunder, I'm not afraid of the rain, I'm afraid of the holy God that I'm standing before right now because he should destroy me, he should crush me. And what do they say? They say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. And they confess their sins and they put their faith in God. They say, we have added to all our sins this great evil to ask for ourselves a king. This is their faith and this is their repentance being demonstrated through pleading with Samuel. Please pray for us. We believe, help our unbelief. This is their cry of salvation. And that changes everything. Everything is changed now. This is the hinge that shifts everything. Now they go from standing before a holy God in fear and in terror that he's going to destroy them. And to Samuel saying, do not be afraid. Something has changed. Your repentance is evidence that something has changed. You've confessed your sin. You believe. This is not just a nice speech that's kind of interrupted by this cool parlor trick of thunder and rain. They are genuinely terrified. It's serious wrath about to be poured out as... The thunder crashes, the lightning strikes as the rain is pouring down. They are remembering everything that Samuel reminded them of. They're remembering that when fire came out from the Lord and consumed their ancestors. They're remembering when God looked upon the earth and saw that that there was only evil ever continually in man's heart. And so he sent a flood to destroy. They remember Korah's, Korah's rebellion when those who rebelled were swallowed by the earth and destroyed, and then a plague struck and over 14,000 died before they were able to offer up a peace offering and make peace, they remember what God is capable of, that he is capable of destroying them, and they know that he should. They understand their sin rightfully. But instead of, the, of lightning... Coming with that thunder and striking them dead. Because of their repentance, the lightning of God's word strikes their heart as truth. They believe, and another miracle takes place. They're changed. They're brought to life. Their response is faith and repentance. My prayer for you is that as the word of God is preached, it would strike your heart as true, like lightning to your soul. That it would bring conviction that you stand before a holy God condemned apart from knowing Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that you would respond as they did in faith and repentance before a holy God. As God looked down on them, they repent What happens? He doesn't doesn't look into their future and see that, oh, they're eventually going to fear me, so I I guess I'll save them, because down the road they'll fear me. No, look at chapter 13. It goes downhill from here. He doesn't look into their future and say, oh, they're going to fear me, so I guess I'll save them. No, he looks into the future and sees that their sin is placed on the cross and taken away He places their sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in that same passage in Romans, God becomes just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It looks like God is sweeping all of the sin under the rug. It looks like he's just saying, oh, it's fine that you sin. It's not that big a deal. Don't be afraid. No, that's not what he's doing. He takes care of sin once and for all at the cross. Praise God for that. And the same thing can be true of you right now in this moment. As the word goes forth, as the Holy Spirit rains down and convicts, you can turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And Jesus doesn't look forward to see if you'll serve him or not, he looks back at what Christ has already done on the cross. He puts your sin, your filth, your unrighteousness on his own beloved son. And he takes the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect life that he lived, serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, and following the Lord perfectly. And he takes his righteousness and gives it to you so that you are changed. You are new creation in Christ Jesus. And that is my prayer is that you would turn to Jesus Christ. He takes the record of your sin and he nails it to the cross. Hallelujah. In verses 20 through 22, he's now instructing them in their new faith, in their new repentance. Repentance. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Yeah, it's true. You have done all this evil. It's true. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself, he doesn't rush to comfort them. He kind of rides on the coattails of their repentance to correct their theology and to exhort them to faithful living in the future. He reaffirms the gravity of the situation. He doesn't say, "Don't be afraid. It was what you did wasn't that bad. It's it's probably fine." I mean. God will, you know, he, he's in the business of forgiving, so he, he'll probably forgive you. No. He says something has changed. He reaffirms, it's true. You are a sinner before a holy God. But by your faith and your repentance, you have life in his name. And then he affirms that it's all about that name. We have to have a right view of our own sin A correct view of our own nature. If you make light of your guilt and your shame, track with me, track with me. If you make light of your guilt and your shame, you're making light of God's mercy. If you make light of your sin, you're making light of God's holiness. It is so important that we think rightly about our own sin. And that's why he doesn't say, oh, it's okay, it's fine. No, he says, you have done all of this evil, but you're forgiven. Remember that. Remember that. Remember, believing Christian, the cross. You have done great evil, and it's forgiven. And then he leaves them with three reasons why you can fear God and not be afraid. This is beautiful. Three reasons. This is in verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake and because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. I'm gonna put these in uh, easy points for you. First, if you're a Christian, Jesus has promised he will never leave you or forsake you. That is a comfort to us. It's not a pat your hand kind of comfort. It's a real comfort. In fact, he's called the comforter. I will never leave you or forsake you. As you live out your life following, serving, obeying the Lord, take comfort in knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you. While they have been unfaithful, while you have been unfaithful, God remains faithful to his covenant. He will never leave you or forsake you. We read uh, one of the books we gave away to parents is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in it, uh, the author says that God has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. You've broken covenant with your God but he won't break covenant with you. He is faithful. Secondly, he says, it's, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about his great name. And that brings true comfort because that weight is lifted. It's not about your best life. It's not about you living some, up to some sort of dream. It is you living in submission to a holy God. And when you make your life all about his, man, the pressure's off. I can live for Jesus. I don't have to live up to some worldly standard. If you get that wrong, if you make it all about you, it'll drive you to an arrogant self-deception because you think you've done it, you think you've arrived, or it'll drive you to utter despair. Do not make this life all about yourself. It's about his great name. And lastly, he really is pleased to have a relationship with you. Oh, that's, that is the one for me. He really is pleased to have a relationship with you. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that it pleases the Lord to have a relationship with you, to know you? He initiated. He called you. He loved you. First, so you should love him. If you forget that, meditate on the cross because it's at the cross that he's demonstrated that love. It really does please him to have a relationship with you. It pleased him to woo you, to pursue you, it pleases him to draw you ever closer. Remember that and fear the Lord. Let's pray.